0: When you don't trust what the Bible says, you get depressed. When you get depressed, you start working out. When you start working out, you realize that you fit into your son's clothing. When you fit into your son's clothing, you get mistaken for Justin Bieber. Oh, my God, it's Justin Bieber! When you get mistaken for Justin Bieber, you get chased by teeny boppers. When you get chased by teeny boppers, you get trampled within an inch of your life. Don't get trampled within an inch of your life. Trust the Bible. So I think everybody's going to remember from this. Don't get trampled by teeny boppers. Trust the Bible. And actually, that's what we're going to talk about today. Today we're kicking off 40 Days in the Word. I'm really excited about this. I think it's going to be a great six weeks we're going to have together. Um, There's a lot of components with it. First component is what we're doing right now, Sunday morning sermon. We're going to have this every week. Uh. Talk about the Bible, a part of it and how it, it applies to our lives. And the second part is is our small groups. If you haven't signed up for a small group yet, you need to. We have twelve small groups meeting some on Sunday morning, some Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night. We'll give you a chance at the end of the service. We'll show you the leaders and let you sign up. And you also need to get your book, your daily devotions, lots of things. But today I want to get started and talk about the Bible. Particularly I want to talk about can you trust the Bible? If we're going to do 40 days in the Word, we really need to know, can we trust this book that we're going to talk about? As you read it, as you study it, as you learn about it, the question is, can you trust it? And so I want to start out today with one of the verses of the Bible where it talks about itself, where the Bible says, this is what I am, this is what it it purports to be. And it's in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It's going to come right up here on the screens. 2 Timothy 3, 16 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, now I want to look at that first phrase, that phrase, God-breathed. What does that mean? It means... The Bible, what we call the Word of God, is inspired by God. It's the, the breath of God. Right now, the Word of, of me, as I'm, as I'm preaching up here, how does that work? How do, how do you hear the words I'm saying? Well my breath comes out of my lungs across my vocal cords. It vibrates them in a certain way, and and it proceeds out of my mouth, and the waves go out across this room where they hit your ears, and those vibrations are translated in your brains into particular words that you understand and can make sense of. And so when we say this sermon is being preached, another way to say it is being uh, preacher-breathed or Charles-breathed, that it's my breath that's bringing it. And the same thing with Scripture, the idea that when we pick up the Bible— the Word of God, what it is, is the breath of God. He's He's speaking to us. It's His Word. His breath is His Word. And notice what it says. God's Word is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. And then the last part, verse 17 actually. So that, what's the purpose? What's the reason God inspired or breathed out the Bible? So that the man or woman of God can be thoroughly equipped... For every good work. The Bible was given to us so that we could be ready to do all that God had for us to do. To live a life in the way God wanted us to live it. And so God inspired the Bible. He gave it to us so that we could live it and it could be practical. It could be useful in our lives for a lot of things so that we would be the kind of people that ultimately please him. Now, the Bible itself is a remarkable book when you think about it. And when you think, why can you trust the Bible? Let's talk about that. Why can we trust the Bible? Well, one thing about the Bible that sticks out to me is the fact that it is a united whole. Now, in a lot of ways, that's not a big deal. Books are usually united wholes. If I were to sit down and write a book, maybe over six months or a year, maybe one of your favorite authors like John Grisham or or maybe... a somebody else writes a book, you know they start with chapter one, and they go through the whole thing, and they have a theme they develop, and they put characters in place, they give facts to you, and when you get to the end of that book, you know, okay, that's a unified whole. But what's unique about the Bible is that's not how it came together. It's not a book that somebody sat down over a year or two and wrote down. In fact, the Bible isn't a book at all. It's made up of 66 smaller writings, ancient writings, ancient documents. We call them the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible. And it was written over a period of of 15, 1,600 years, over 1,600 years, not by one person over a few years, but over 1,600 years by about 40 or so different writers, 40 different writers, 1,600 years. Uh, they were spread across three continents And wrote in three different languages. Do you you understand how remarkable this book is that we call the Bible? It's not a book at all. It's a collection of 66 ancient documents written in that way. And the people that wrote them come from all walks of life. Yes, we have uh, the educated. We have the kings and princes. We have those who were were historians or, or doctors. We have those also who were just average people, common people. Uh, people that didn't have the advantage of education, that just simply wrote down the things they saw and recorded for us, and over a period of time, all of this came together, and it is a unified whole. That's what's remarkable about the Bible. What's one thing that commends the Bible to me? Is that over 1,600 years, 40 authors, three continents, three different languages, by people from all walks of life, there is a book that from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, fits together. Now what what is the the unifying theme or the unifying idea of the Bible? Well it's this Luke chapter twenty four, verse twenty seven. We we have this account that tells us what the Bible tells us about. Jesus actually is talking and it's it's when he's on the road to Emmaus. After his resurrection, he he's on he meets these men on the road and they don't recognize him as the risen Savior. They don't know who it is they're talking to. And in that process of walking along the road, Luke twenty four twenty seven says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning who? Concerning himself. What's the unifying theme of the Bible? It's Jesus. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation, that's what this says. When Jesus is talking about Moses, we're talking about the very first Five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the books of Moses from the very first. Genesis Genesis chapter 3 has the first prophecy of the coming of a Savior. And he goes through through those in the historical books. Uh, And he goes through the prophetic books. And he says to these two people on the road to Emmaus, all of this is about me. And in the next book, John chapter 5, it says this. You search the scriptures. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures because they believe you believe they give you eternal life but the scriptures point to me so so this amazing book 1600 years 40 different authors three different languages and three different continents all together is a one unit thematically pointing to the story of our redemption of our salvation pointing to what god has done for us in jesus that is a remarkable thing when you say And, and and really when you think about the book too even though we can say that we have to understand not only is it thematically unified but people have been attacking it from as long as it's been out it seems like it is probably the most attacked book in history people debate it and they want to ban it and outlaw it they destroy it and yet Year in and year out, it is the number one best-selling book ever, every year, all time. That's the Bible. In fact, if you were to look at the 2014 best-sellers, you wouldn't see the Bible, because they just quit putting it there. It's just pointless to put it there, because every year it's the best-selling book. But guess what? 2015, and with the end of the year, guess what's going to be the best-selling book? That's right, the Bible. In 2016, we're not even to 2016 yet. You know what the number one best-selling book will be? That's right, it'll be the Bible. Even though it's attacked, the unity of its theme and the power that it has pointing to Jesus allows it to stand the test of time. It says about itself, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It is an amazing book in how it was put together, how it survived all of the things that have come against it. But but I want you to know also, not just is it is it an amazing book in that way, but it is an accurate book. It is an accurate book. We can trust what the Bible says. Now, now, one way it's accurate is it is prophetically accurate. And really, when I say that, you're not surprised. You know that that would be expected, that the Bible, you would expect it to be prophetically accurate. In fact, part of the Bible is prophecy, where it predicts the future. And because of that, you would expect when the Bible talks about the future, it would be accurate about the future. This is the, the one that, that maybe is the least debatable, or the one that most people would accept. But I want you to not take that for granted, because that's significant. The fact that it is prophetically accurate. That's no small thing. In fact, let's just take one part of the prophecies in the Bible and talk about those for a minute. Just the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. There are about 300 prophecies, particularly on Messiah, who the Messiah would be, where and how he would be born, even how he would die. About 300 prophecies in that regard. And of those 300, in the person of Jesus, in the singular person of Jesus, they all came true. And and the thing you need to know is the things that came true aren't things he had control over. For instance, if, if I were to tell you, uh, today, I am going to have lunch at Wendy's and get a cheeseburger. If I made that prediction, it would be very easy for me to make sure that prediction comes true. How? Well, by leaving here at lunchtime and going to Wendy's and buying a cheeseburger. I have control over that. I can predict it, and I can actually act in a way that makes sure it comes true. That That's not nearly as impressive as what we see in the Bible when it predicts about Jesus, where he will be born. It says particularly that he'll be born in Bethlehem of Judah. Why is that? Well, that was what the prophet Micah said. Now, Jesus had no control over that. You don't have control over where you're going to be born. I didn't have control over where I was going to be born. I was born in central Florida, in Leesburg, to my parents, and I had no say in the matter. I just showed up. I was just there. I was just born. I couldn't help make sure that happened. In fact, it didn't even though they lived in the town, if they would have been out of town, I could have been born somewhere else. I had no control over how that would happen. And Jesus, think about that. The Bible says he's born in Bethlehem, but that's not even where his parents were from. They had to travel, and the the dynamics of history with the the taxing that came to make them go to leave their hometown, to go to Bethlehem. All of that had to happen in the perfect way. And that was just one of the predictions. Or how about his death? Do you know, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, David, king of Israel, the great king of Israel, in the Psalms, describes the death that Jesus would face by crucifixion? You can even read one particular, Psalm 22. In Psalm 22, it talks about... uh, Crucifixion, piercing his hands and his feet. It even describes in Psalm 22 that the soldiers would cast lots for his clothes. Now, crucifixion didn't even exist when David wrote Psalm 22. he never heard of it. It wasn't something that was going to happen until later when the Romans came to power. And yet, because God is perfect and oversaw everything in history and knows everything, he made sure the Bible was prophetically accurate so that when David wrote Psalm 22... Hundreds of years later, when Jesus was crucified, those two things, that prophecy, lined up with what happened. The odds of, of all of those, I said about 300 predictions about the Messiah that have come true in the person of Jesus, the odds of all of those predictions, all of those prophecies coming true in a single individual, not in several individuals, but in one person over a short period of time in history, a 33 or so year life, the odds are astronomical and yet we see in that the accuracy of the Bible of the prophetic things in the Bible and that should give us confidence because there's many prophecies in the Bible that haven't come true yet they haven't happened yet they're yet to come and Looking back and seeing how faithful God was to the prophecies that have already come true, we can have great confidence that he will be equally as faithful that the prophecies that yet are to come about heaven and eternity and the return of Christ and the second coming and all of that. All of that, we can take great confidence that those are accurate too. The Bible is prophetically accurate. And that should be significant to us. I want you to also know, not only is it prophetically accurate, but the Bible is historically accurate. The Bible gets history right. Now, a lot of people talk about the Bible, and they say, you know, the age of the Bible, and and all of that sort of thing, that, you know, it's, it's fable, it's myth, it's just making things up. But it's not. The Bible accurately depicts history. It talks about real people that lived in certain places that archaeologists can and do and still study and find out, hey, what the Bible says is true. We can trust the Bible. It is historically accurate. Now, now, if you want to get the real story about what happened in history, who would you ask? You'd probably ask people that saw it happen. And that's what the Bible is about. The people that are writing the Bible, Old Testament history, New Testament, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, those are eyewitnesses. They're people that actually saw what happened and recorded what they saw, that were there when that sermon was preached, or that battle was fought, or that huge, important event in history happened, and they recorded what it was. We have eyewitness accounts of what happened. And and, and then, Even when there's times when people go, well, I don't think that's true because we can't find a record of it, archaeology eventually comes around and confirms the things in the Bible. For for instance, um, one of the things that we could look at for a long time uh, was this nation called the Hittites. Hittites, Old Testament nation, group of people, uh, civilization. That was there: Hittites, Jebusites, all those different ites in the Old Testament. Hittites are one of them. And for a long time, there was no record. There's no archaeological record saying the Hittites existed. And so there were those who said, "See, it's just one of those things the Bible made up to further its story, the, to show Israel's dominance, or whatever the case may be." But lo and behold, guess what? The archaeologists start digging around, and as they're able to to finally dig, they uncover amazing record of a Hittite civilization to the point that now everybody knows whether biblically or or secularly, there was a Hittite civilization. Another thing that that um, was disputed for a long time we talked about Solomon having horses and many people looked at that and said, you know, that's not normal. Horses weren't in that part of the world. That doesn't make sense. It's more like camels. Why would he have horses? That was disputed. And then along comes a dig at a place in Israel called Megiddo. Megiddo and in that dig at megido guess what they dig up they dig up huge chariot stable areas with all the evidences that yes indeed the bible was accurate that that there were horses there not camels or whatever people thought. There was even a time when, when the birth of Jesus, it talks about a word I have a hard time saying, name I have a hard time Quirinius, I think, was governor. Uh, there was no record. People said, oh, this is, this is wrong. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit in history. We have no record with all the records we have of that being the case. But guess what? Over time, archaeologists dug another hole and found some documents, and sure enough, In different finds, they came up with the fact that, yes, there was, in fact, a Quirinius that was governor in that part of the world at that time when the Bible says. The Bible's written by eyewitnesses. They get the history right. It's historically accurate. They want to make sure we know what actually happened. And archaeology, again and again and again, maybe not immediately, but eventually comes around and confirms it. Now, another thing people say about the accuracy of the Bible historically is, well, you know, if we could go back to the original documents they call them the original autographs that's like the the actual scrolls that they wrote initially and originally if we could go back to those then we could trust them but you know it's been so long and so many years that there's no way people didn't add things or change things when they when they moved the Bible. They added this detail to make it look better, and so on and so forth. That's maybe pretty convincing, um, you know, just to make the Bible seem more accurate. But what we find when we look at how the Scriptures have been copied, how they've been passed down and, and cared for, we realize that doesn't make sense. We'll have to look at this in two parts. We need to look at the New Testament separately from the Old Testament, because the New Testament is remarkable. The New Testament is the most well attended, well attested ancient document there is. By far. Nothing else is even close. There are over twenty thousand fragments or whole documents, some of them dating within a hundred years of the events recorded in the New Testament, of these New Testament books. Over twenty thousand. That's just an unfathomable amount particularly when you consider the next most well-attested document of that same era in history is less than a hundred documents you see the difference 20,000 and and if i were to talk to you like let's pick someone plato you know who plato is no no not the kid, thing the kids play with no i'm talking about the philosopher the greek philosopher plato if i were to ask does anybody not believe in plato of course, nobody's going to raise their hand. There's no dispute out there about, can we trust Plato? Did Plato actually live, and did he actually write and say the things that we believe he wrote and said? Everybody believes that. But when you look at the documentary evidence, it's it's just fragmentary. There's a handful of documents that are hundreds of years after the days of Plato, and yet nobody disputes the accuracy with which Plato has been passed down historically. And yet the New Testament, over 20,000 documents or fragments of documents, some within a 100 years or less of the, the events they're actually recording. And when you look at this 20,000 documents and compare them, they are 95% the same. It's not like this one and that one are markedly different. Oh, maybe a misspelled name here and there, a change in name spelling. But, but the differences are so minor in those 20,000 documents that it's it's ridiculous to say with the New Testament, well, you know, that's just been added to, they made made up that miracle or added this after the fact. That doesn't pass the test that that's accurate. And that's the New Testament. let's talk about the Old Testament because that's a little different. The Old Testament is older. Obviously, it's the name, of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a little older, but, but do you understand how they went about copying the documents of the Old Testament? They took great care with the Old Testament documents. They didn't copy word for word, by the way. They copied letter by letter. You know how you you text today? Anybody here text? Of course, we all text. We all text. And if you're like me, you have a phone that has autocorrect, and you're trying to type a word, and it thinks it knows the right word that you're trying to type, and it changes the word, and you send a text that makes no sense, and you have to go back later. It just, you know, you know how that is. That's word. It's going by word, and and we know how easy it is to mess it up. Well, well, they knew that too, and so they copied letter by letter. That's how they did it. And more than that. They would check after it was copied. They knew a few things. Like, for instance, they would know in this particular uh, book of the Old Testament, there are this number of the Hebrew letter Aleph, the letter A. And so after copying it, they would count. And let's say there's supposed to be 1,523 Alephs or letter As. If they counted 1,524 letter As, they destroyed that document. It was incorrect. It wasn't saved. All that time that went into it went away not only that but they knew the middle letter of the first of all the th- first five books of the New Testament I mean excuse me Old Testament Genesis Exodus Leviticus numbers they knew the middle letter and they would find that middle letter and they would count the letters forward to the end and backward to the beginning and those numbers of letters better match up because if the, if you had more letters in the first half than the second half there was a mistake somewhere so guess what they did They destroyed that scroll and started over. Not only that, but they knew the middle letter of the entire Old Testament. And they would do the same thing with that. And if those numbers didn't match up, it was destroyed. They took great care in copying the scriptures. And we know how much great care is because of a very significant discovery called the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the actual documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found just 50, 60 years ago date to about 100 years before Jesus. And it was an incredible find of Old Testament scrolls, whole, whole scrolls of books of the Old Testament. Up to that point, the oldest copies or documents we had of the Old Testament were about eight or 900 years after Jesus. So now we have these documents that are maybe a 1,000 years older than the oldest one we have, and when they compared those from the Dead Sea Scrolls to the ones 900, 1,000 years later, guess what? They were the same. We can trust the historical accuracy of the Bible. People wrote it because they saw what happened. Archaeology confirms it, and they took great care to make sure it was passed down all of these years to us in a way that makes sense. But I, I want to go now to the maybe the most... I don't want to say controversial, but maybe you'll say the most disputed way the Bible is accurate. Did you know the Bible's scientifically accurate? Now, now let me clarify. That doesn't mean the Bible is a book of science, because it's not. Y- you can't open the Bible and say, uh, I want to learn how to build a rocket, and go to the Bible and it'll teach you how to build a rocket. No, the Bible's not a, a science textbook. It doesn't teach us science. But when the, the Bible speaks on science, it speaks accurately and 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 let's just be honest science is interesting because when we think about science even when when that is the modern way of comparing things that science is sort of the the top it has to be scientifically this or that or it's not worth anything you know science changes the things that are true today weren't true scientifically speaking 50 years ago 75 years ago they just weren't it was different in fact the the book that I used for my, let's say, third grade science textbook, they wouldn't use that in third grade today. They wouldn't use it just 30, 40 years later. Because why? We've learned things. technologies advance, Methods are better. We found out stuff that's different than what was thought to be true when I was in third grade, and so they've updated the science books. In fact, the the museum, uh, the Louvre in in Paris, has miles and miles of old science books that just aren't used anymore because we've learned more, and the things that once were thought to be true have been proven false. Let's look at some. For instance, if we were to go back to the founding of our country, good old Christopher Columbus sailing the ocean blue 1492, what did they believe was going to happen? They believed he was going to fall off the end of the earth because the earth was flat, right? And everybody believed that. That was understood to be the case. The earth was flat. Um, And yet, when we go to the Bible, I want you to see something. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 22. You know what the Bible says? This is 2,600 or so years ago. Long time ago. This is what the Bible says Isaiah 40, verse 22, when God revealed to Isaiah these words, it says this, God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Can you believe that? God knew the earth wasn't flat, and so when he revealed it to Isaiah to record those words, he didn't say above the plane or the rectangle of the earth. He said God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. How about how the earth is supported in space? Different places believe different things. For instance, the ancient Greeks believed, you know, Greek mythology atlas the giant atlas the the strongman atlas held up the world go back a little further than that and you would you would see in the Hindu religion the earth sits on the back of giant elephants who stand on the back of sea turtles who stand on the back of a sea serpent swimming in a sea that's how the earth was supposedly held up i know it's crazy isn't it but that's what people believed we know that's not the case now egyptians they they had the idea that the earth was held up by five pillars In fact, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, was schooled under Pharaoh. He had the very best education you could possibly have in Egypt. And I am sure at some point he learned that Egyptian science fact, the earth is held up by five pillars. But if you read what he wrote, if you read those first five books in the Old Testament, you know what you won't find? You won't find anywhere where it says the earth is held up on pillars. Why? Because that's not true. And when God breathed or inspired the Bible through the people that wrote it, he didn't want them putting inaccurate things in there. So it's not in there. What is in there? Job chapter 26. Job, by the way, probably the oldest writing we've gathered in the Bible. It doesn't. Talk about the oldest things. Genesis talks about creation. But Job itself as a document is the most ancient of the documents collected, we believe, in the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Job 26.7. It says, God stretches the sky over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Not on pillars, not on atlas, not on elephants. It hangs the earth on nothing. Why? Because God knew that's it. So the Bible, when it speaks scientifically in that way, is accurate. How about the number of stars? In a couple hundred years B.C., Hipparchus counted the stars, and he announced there were 1,022 stars in the universe. A couple hundred years later, told scientist, studied and said, no, 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 there are 1,026. He found four more. You know how many stars there are in the universe? How many stars are there? Well, we have the Hubble telescope, and we have incredible technology today that says what? The stars are infinite. The vastness of the universe. Everywhere we look, there are stars. We can't even begin to fathom the number of stars. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 22, when God is speaking to His people, when He's telling them about the the vastness, He says, "In fact, you got it. The number of stars are intimate, or excuse me, infinite. The number of stars are." Innumerable, As innumerable as the sands on the seashore. That's how many stars are out there. You can't count them. God was accurate, not limited to the science of the day. How about this? How about um, illness, germs? We know today a lot more about germs. But for a long time in, in, in history, medical science told us blood was what caused problems. You were ill, and the way to cure illness was to bleed you. In fact, we've got George Washington, our first president. One of the causes of his death as he was ill is his doctors bled him two, three times so that one of the reasons he died was from loss of blood. Now we do the opposite. We know blood isn't the cause of illness where we bleed them. We actually give them blood. We do the blood counts and find out how they might need to support that. And what does the Bible say? Leviticus 17, verse 11. The life of every creature is in the blood. The life of every creature is in the blood. The Bible knows. The Bible is scientifically accurate. We know more about germs today, about how sickness passes along when the Middle Ages and the plague came along. People died, just this pandemic. So many people ill and died because we didn't understand germs and how they were spread from person to person. And yet in Leviticus 13, that book of the Bible that so many people pick on is just being ridiculous. Leviticus 13 verse 4 says this, if you have somebody that's infected, put them in quarantine for seven days. And after seven days, what do you do? If they still show signs, leave them another seven days. God understood germs. God understood the science of that. And he told his people how to act in that way. The Bible is scientifically accurate. Not a science textbook, but you can trust it prophetically, historically, scientifically. That should give you some confidence. You can trust the Bible. Let me just say this as well. You know, some people look at the Bible and they go, you know, that's all well and good, Pastor. You're talking about this and I understand it. But but when I think about the Bible, I really want to talk about Jesus. I, I You know what? Jesus is where it's at for me. I, I believe what Jesus said and how Jesus believed. Because, you know, that Old Testament stuff, sometimes that's hard to swallow. That's tough. You know, there's some hard stuff in there. But but I'll stick with Jesus. You want to know what today? Do you know Jesus believed the Bible? Jesus believed the Old Testament. Jesus talks about Adam and Eve. Jesus talks about Jonah and the whale. Jesus talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Can you believe that? Some of the most disputed Old Testament things Jesus speaks about as if he believed it. It's right there in red letters. You want to stick with the red letters? You say, I want to believe what Jesus believed? I'm telling you, you've got to believe the Bible, the whole thing, the Old Testament too, because Jesus believed it. He, he himself said, listen, there's not the least bit, not the jot or tittle is going to pass away until everything is completed. He says, I haven't come to abolish the law of the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus. Believed. So if you want to stick with Jesus, which I think is a great idea to follow what he believed, one of the things you have to do is trust the Bible. See, Because as we go through life, we want to pick and choose. We want to say, well, you know, I like this. I like how that says. I want to, I want to follow that. That makes sense. Oh, but that's kind of old. That's kind of outdated. That doesn't make sense in, the, you know, our century and in, in the in 2015 and all of this sort of thing. Well, you know what? Let me just be honest with you. If that's what you believe, if that's how you want to act, and you say, no, no, I trust the Bible. No, you don't trust the Bible. You trust yourself. You don't trust the Bible. You trust you. You don't trust what God says. You trust that you know better than God, and you can pick and choose what you want to believe and what you want to follow. And that's not how it works. That is not how it works. See, the Bible can be trusted because it contains truth in it from cover to cover is god's truth revealed to us and what do you do with truth you believe it and you act on it and you ignore it at your peril let's say i i I told you today i don't believe in gravity it's overrated. It's you know, guy under the tree with the apple on his head. Please, that is so long ago. That was probably just a story somebody made up. It's a myth. It's a legend. It's a fable. I don't need gravity. That's Forget it. No, I don't need any gravity. That is so ridiculous to believe. How, how could you believe something that old and outdated? You, you could say, oh, that's just crazy, Charles. Say, yeah. So maybe the two of us go to New York City. We're on the top of the Empire State Building. There we are at the top. And somehow gravity comes up. You say, you don't believe in gravity. Look at us. And I'm like, no, I don't believe in gravity. I'll show you how much I don't believe in gravity. I'm going to jump. And I jump. And what happens when I jump? I fall. Well, let's say somebody sees me falling and about the 50th floor opens the window, puts their heads out and say, hey, how's gravity working out for you now? And I might say, so far, so good. <laughs> right? Because at that point, I'm okay. But in a few more stories the reality, the truth of gravity, I'm going to come face to face with it and it's splat and that's the same thing with God's truth you can choose to say I don't believe it, but that doesn't mean the Bible's any less true and one day or another all of us are going to come face to face with the reality of God's truth, see we don't break God's laws, more often than not they break us And when we we look at the Bible as this book we can trust, here's the, the real amazing part of it. The Bible can change us. The Bible can transform our lives from the inside out, if we'll just believe what it says. Jesus said this. It's a verse that a lot of people know, a lot of people quote. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? The truth shall make you free. Everybody looks at it. I mean, you might have huge universities with that quote right there. That's in John chapter 8, verse 32. But you know what it says in verse 31? Not many people quote verse 31. They go right to verse 32, know the truth, the truth is three. You know what it says in verse 31? If you continue in my word. If you continue in my word, how do you know the truth? By continuing in the Word, that verse in the context tells us, if you want the truth to set you free, you better find it in the Word of God. And I will tell you, there are people I believe in this room that will tell you right now, they believed the truth of God and it set them free. There are people in this room that suffered with addiction. They They were bound by it, they couldn't beat it. And then somewhere along the way, either somebody or somehow came to them and they picked up the Bible and they began to read it. And they read what God wanted for them and how God would help them through his Holy Spirit and how God would save them. And they trusted him and he set them free from that addiction. And their life has been transformed by that. There are people in this room that were were in situations and relationships, falling apart, that turned to God, trusted his word, trusted his truth. You know what they found? When they trusted Him, when they believed the Bible, when they saw its truth and put it in action, it transformed their relationships. It, transform, it takes us from sinners lost and apart from God to adopted His very children. The Word of God will transform you. which is that's, that's why we're doing this, 40 Days in the Word. That's why we're doing this, so that you can put the Word of God deeply in your life and allow it to transform you from the inside out. Listen, in, in just a minute, we're going to have our time of response. And what I want you to do... Is, is this, something very specific. I, I have covenant cards up here. These covenant cards are cards that I'm going to ask you to take a minute and come up and sign. I'm going to put them right here on the front row, this front row right here. Just spread them out over here. There will be some pens up here. And, and I want to ask you this. If you will commit that for the next 40 days, you will go on this journey with us, 40 days in the Word, you'll do your best to come and be a part of our worship service to hear these messages. You'll get involved in a small group. You'll, you'll do a daily quiet time. The workbook that you'll get, it has daily assignments in it. Plus, you can also go on the website, and we'll talk more about that later, how you can go on the website and get a devotion every day, a video devotion from well-known pastors, Rick Warren, Craig Groeschel, J.D. Greer, lots of others do recorded 40 individual daily devotions you can watch, just five to seven minutes, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening, and then your, and then your daily workbook. And you'll memorize, we're going to memorize one verse of scripture every week. And, and, and so what I'm going to ask you to do is, if you'll covenant to be a part of us a part with us of this 40 days in the Word. I'm going to ask you during our, our invitation time, if our musicians will come up, if our singers will come up, we're going, to, we're going to go ahead and have our time of response. I'm going to ask you to step out from your seat and come up here and grab one of these cards and you just sign your name and then place it on the altar. If you want to pray at the altar, whatever it is, but just commit yourself to the to, to seriously taking this 40 days in the Word journey with us and see with all of us and experience with all of us the simple fact That we can trust God. We can take God at his word.